I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, this is Everything Else, the new podcast from the Financial Times, which we won't talk about the rise of exchange-traded funds, and don't get me started on the triggering of Article 50. That's right. This is a culture podcast. Think film, not finance, music, not markets, and style, not stocks. On today's show, we'll cover books, contemporary art, and performance poetry, as well as all-you-can-eat buffets. We'll also hear from the writer, poet, and novelist Kate Tempest. She talks about her influences from the Wu-Tang Clan's William Blake. She also tells us about the rougher side of London and how it runs through all of her work. But before that, we'll be discussing the politics of prize-giving, from the Nobel Prize for Literature, which Dylan won this year, to the Turner Prize, which was announced this week. And we'll also be speaking to FT reporter Richard Milne, who recently went to Reykjavik to have lunch with the man who jailed Iceland's bankers. My name's John Sonia. And I'm Griselda Murray-Brown, and we're both culture editors here at the FT. Today we wanted to discuss the politics of prize giving because we're interested in how these kinds of cultural awards work, who judge them, what they're judging, why they drive so many people slightly crazy, and what they can tell us about our wider culture. Awards have been a bit controversial this year. There was Oscars So White at the start of the year. And in October, much of the literary establishment was outraged when Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for Literature. This week, of course, was the Turner Prize, won by the 31-year-old artist Helen Martin, which in fact wasn't particularly controversial. And we'll discuss later why Britain's best-known contemporary art prize fails to whip up controversy, as it once did. OK, so we're joined in the studio by former Bicycle Courier, literary critic and teacher of English at King's, John Day, who was also on the judging panel for this year's Man Booker Prize. And also with us is the FT's executive comment editor, Jonathan Derbyshire, who was a judge on this year's Bailey Gifford Prize, the kind of booker equivalent for non-fiction. Thanks for joining us, guys. It's great to have you both here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. However, I'm sure it hasn't escaped the notice of our listeners that I am sitting around a table with three men called John, uh, kind (laughs) of like (laughs) FTSE 100 companies. Uh, There are more uh, men leading them up called John than there are women. Um, And this is not actually insignificant in a panel discussion about who judges cultural prizes, who we award things to and who gets to judge that. Uh, So I'm sure that's something we'll get into later. But just just a little thing before we start. Our producer wanted to make sure that our listeners are absolutely clear which John is which. So we're going to ask gonna you... Well, I'm Jonathan, maybe that will help. You're, you're Jonathan, sorry. It didn't, it didn't quite work for my joke, so I, I made you John <laughs> yes. for that, sorry. I can be Jont for the duration. <laughs> John makes things easy. Okay, that's what my daughter calls me. Okay, <laughs> let's just start with um, just giving us a sense of how it was actually being a judge on these prizes. <laughs> Jont on the booker, which uh, kind of famously you have to read a vast, vast vast quantity of books and I know you like reading but how how was it mm. you're about a month or so out of the prize now how blissfully was free of fiction yeah it was it was an arduous process and and the relentlessness of it um we read 166 books uh, and that was between January and July of this year the, the kind of heavy lifting gets done a book a day it amounts to 
And everyone kind of talks about that before you begin. And I asked a few ex-judges what it was like. And they were like, well, you know, it's tough on your family and it's <laughs> relentless and awful. And, and then you're like, well, no, I'm still, it's going to be fine, I'm sure. And, It'll be different from me. <laughs> <laughs> and when you're in the midst of it, it's, it is relentless. And I mean, what's kind of fascinating, I think, about the man book is the sense that you get of a kind of year in the life of a novel. So being exposed to what publishers think of as the best fiction published in a single year is, is an extraordinary experience. And it's not something, I mean, I, I review books for a living and I, I um, you know, I kind of read a lot of contemporary fiction anyway, but I didn't have any anything like the kind of the, the comprehensiveness of knowledge of the, the novel that, that I gained this year. But yeah, there is a time sort of halfway through when you're on your three month book a day, including weekends. When you think, <laughs> God, stop coming. Jonathan, you have you had less books to read. Yeah, it was my good fortune and John's misfortune. Um, <laughs> the Bailey Gifford Prize has a different sifting process, so you end up reading about 40 or 50 books, which is much more manageable. We were struck, for example, this year by the number of books that could loosely be termed uh, memoirs. Not autobiographies, not biography, but memoir. And the four books we ended up putting on the shortlist, and there was a piece in Private Eye which drew attention to this. Uh, good old Private Eye. Good old Private Eye. Um, <laughs> had in different ways elements of memoir. I mean, the, the book that won Philippe Sand's Extraordinary East-West Street has elements of memoir. It's partly a family saga. In part, your choices are obviously the choices that reflect the um, subjective dispositions of the judges, but you also reflect certain things, trends that are abroad in, mm -hmm. in the wider publishing culture. And this was something which I think was slightly unfair, actually, which was private. I was slightly criticising the fact that the shortlist was based on kind of non-fiction which had many tropes of the memoir yeah. genre and also you told me one very prestigious economics commentator at the FT said the shortlist was very literary this year that could be read in two ways well exactly yeah. because he's an economist I don't think he intended that as a compliment but he's the economist in question we won't name him but he's he's an unusually erudite and um, well well read chap so I, I'll, I'll take I will take that as a, as a compliment the question about why there is this preoccupation with the single human voice and, yeah. and with the personal story. I mean, that's a set, it's that, a striking it shift. I mean, it's something that the, the yeah. fiction faced a few years ago with discussions about, you know, the fact that we kind of are, are losing faith in fiction in some respects. So, you know, David Shields' essay, Reality Hunger, which was a kind of an attempt to say the novel's dying because actually we're interested in real stories. This seems to be approaching a similar question from the other side, as it were, that the, the the generic biography or the kind of the big book is is not what we think nonfiction should. I, I mean, I, I that's what I took the gist of Private Eye's criticism <clears throat> to be. And um, the piece in Private Eye said, well, what would the judges have done had there been a book such as um, Hellman's Rich, Joyce or, or Richard Dawkins' The Selfish Gene? Right, yeah. Well, I have to say, frankly, there wasn't a book <laughs> of, that, <laughs> of that stature. And had a book like Dawkins' The Selfish Gene come along, I th I'm sure we would have. Uh, I'm sure we would have chosen it. It does mm. come down to this question of of kind of what are you looking for as judges? And I don't imagine that there are kind of set directives as such. But they, did you have a sense of kind of this is this is the book I, I want to read of, of my you one know, it's, day? It's, it's interesting. We had so we had you know a fairly intense discussion at the very beginning of the process. The only rubric you get as a as a judge for the man book, and I'm sure it's similar, Bailey Gifford is to select the best cohesive work of fiction. They don't even specify that it has to be a novel. And that's the um, only kind of the, directive slightly. Yeah, get. exactly. And and so yeah. it's kind of up to you as a jury to decide what your criteria of excellence might be. And so we had a lot of, in fact, that process continued throughout our six months of, of kind of reading what we were looking for. So we had, we kind of exchanged a few adjectives at the beginning. You know, someone was interested in craft, someone was interested in originality. And, and <laughs> inevitably those discussions are 
contingent upon the books that are that are submitted. And I remember very clearly coming across the reading the sellout, which was I think number twenty in the mid twenties somewhere, and just thinking, well, this is just a great book that whatever your criteria or whatever kind of post facto critical judgment you kind of erect around it, the the experience of reading was kind of intense and visceral. And I just thought, you know, this is clearly a possible winner, a winner in the end. The kinds of discussions you have around those criteria they, they are kind of disconnected actually from the experience of but certainly for those first readings, then you have to come with your arsenal of arguments. And... I mean, it's interesting, if you look at the history of the Man Booker Prize in particular, that slight fuzziness about the criteria has been a problem in the past. Um, but the public itself, the general public, often has very clear ideas about what sort of book it thinks ought to be rewarded. Now, a very good example of this was um, the 2011 Man Booker Prize, which was judged um, notoriously by Stella Remington, the former director of MI5, uh, one of the other judges was Chris Mullin, the former Labour MP, who is a writer himself, but who notoriously uh, said that what he and his fellow judges were looking for were books that zipped along. Uh, <laughs> so it's kind of redefining Mrs. Mrs. Remington made uh, an also imperishable, notorious remark about the principal criterion being re- readability. Now, this caused huge sort of fluttering of the dovecots in literary London because the suggestion seemed to be, or the assumption seemed to be, that Remington and her fellow judges had somehow betrayed the function or the um, uh, the purpose of the prize. That year and the the intense controversy that the choices um, they made caused actually had actually rather beneficial effects. And one one effect was you you did see that the people running the Man Booker Prize um, they they started to choose more people like John, for example, practicing academics on the on the judging panels, and there were also a number of new prizes emerged in the wake of that mm. of that year. So there was, for example, the Goldsmiths Prize, which explicitly rewards um, experimental, innovative fiction, fiction novels that, in some way or other, explore or exploit mm. all the all the resources. Yeah, Eamon McBride was a Eamon McBride was the first winner of that way. Mm. Um, we, with this extraordinary and to some people rebarbatively unreadable Joycean <laughs> experiment, a girl is a half-formed thing. And then there was the the Folio Prize, which was launched uh, the following year with the explicit aim of rewarding excellence in fiction. But again, that's that's a question-begging definition in itself. I'm not sure how we would define there's also There's also obviously the Not for Booker Prize, which is more explicitly set against the Booker Prize. Yeah. But I think going back slightly to the Stella Remington point we were just discussing yeah. was, I think that got to the crux of one of the biggest issues with literary prizes, is that these books give a sense that there's an idea that there is a novel for everyone. There is one novel that can encapsulate everyone's desires and what they want from literature, which is kind of totally bonkers, right? Well, I sort of see it more as a as as, as, as an intervention of some kind, just as a, a book review or an essay or any other kind of public-facing literary event. Argue the books on the long list, but they can be a, a provocation as much as they can be. I mean, I, of course, the idea that you're going to select a book that everyone's going to like is, is is impossible and indeed would be tedious and awful if, if that were the case. So, I mean, these prizes are, are not primarily, or, or perhaps they are, but they're not just about the kind of commercial boost that an author and a publisher gains. They're about a kind of critical decision and about... Well, they um, are about that, but they're about... Putting something to the public. <laughs> I don't think I quite realised quite what a huge impact even being shortlisted has on, on an author's career. The, the discussion was felt to me anyway, completely kind of removed from those considerations and is, is conducted with, yeah, this this... A rigor, but also the kind of emotional <laughs> investment and in intensity mm. that was so surprising. So people, people was... do still care about these prizes, Massively. and I think I think that goes to something we were we were touching on before, which is about some of the, I guess you could call them 
sort of failings of some of these prizes and, and the, the, the prizes that have been spawned in reaction to that. John and I were talking earlier about the Bailey's Prize, uh, which was then the Orange Prize, conceived in, in 91 in response to the fact that there were no women on the Booker shortlist. Which is, I think, interesting because it was it was set up as a kind of affirmative action, I guess, for for women writers. And we were discussing whether we think it should still exist today. My view is that I think it's like any kind of affirmative action, I guess. I think it's in a way sad that it has to exist, but I think it does good work in promoting. Uh, we talked about Amir McBride just now. Ali Smith also was a, re- a recent winner with an excellent book, How to Be Both. I mean, it's interesting, actually, that men are kind of disproportionately winners of of literary prizes, and yet women buy kind of two thirds of the books that are sold here and in but America. That's one thing that the the Orange and now Bailey's has achieved, actually, mm. because I think if there have been far more shortlisted female authors on the booker since the establishment of these prizes, certainly when a similar thing was started in Australia, the big book prizes responded quite clearly by you know shortlisting equal numbers of men and women. Yeah. I'm a firm believer in more prizes. The more prizes, the better, because I think they're, you know, an opportunity, as I've said, to have these kinds of discussions in in public, arguing with a list, arguing Mm. with um, what the particularly literary forms are doing. Did you think that before you were on the judging panel? Yeah, I mean, I didn't have, I don't think I had as strong feelings either way as I do now, but I think people who criticise, I can see the argument that, that something like the Booker kind of sucks the oxygen from other novels. It seems to me that if we did have, if we had, if the Man Booker ceased to exist, there would be other prominent, you know... There are other prizes. There are other prizes, yeah. but also there are other ways in which books are kind of celebrated and bought. And actually, mm. it's not the only game in town. You know, the word of mouth effect is still remarkably powerful. I mean, I see it as a, as a, as a, as a way of making an intervention in, in the reading public. Yeah, and it's, it's a kind of useful tool for the reader, I guess, on the most basic level, which is, you know, saying we've sifted through all of this year's great books and, and here here's our selection. Mm. And which I think kind of comes around to the this question of, of prizes and, and what they're for and whether they're relevant. I mentioned at the very beginning the Turner Prize, which of course was announced this week. And I think that's an interesting one because it was set up in the 80s before contemporary art was this kind of fashionable, expensive, glitzy thing. We didn't have Tate Modern then. Um, and its mission was to kind of popularise contemporary art. It's sort of done that and it's now a victim of its own success. And, and actually it's quite difficult even to recall who were, who were the winners of the Turner Prizes mm. in the last few years because mm. they're sort of people that, that we yeah, don't it's know kind of, about. The prize is kind of fading into obscurity. Yeah, it, it's almost, no longer and... kind of tabloid baiting. Yeah, and that response, you, mean, you used to get that annual... Oh, turning off and yeah. on. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Call that art. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. I know what I like, criticism, but it doesn't seem to, yeah, you're right, it doesn't seem to register in quite the same way as it does. I mean, I still, I, I'm sure it, mm. it, it fulfills an important function within um, the art world, which is a shame, really, that it's perhaps not as outward looking and kind of, it's not as big a. And of course, yeah, I mean, the economics of the art world are very, very different to the economics of, um, of literary publishing. Mm. I mean, it, it is just worth remembering quite what a boost get even being shortlisted or longlisted gives to a book for judges that brings with it a certain sense of responsibility and and an obligation for example in the first year that the goldsmith's prize won i think it and Ema mcbride's book was published by a small publisher after that uh, result um was focused on whether the judges had intended to reward small publishers, small presses over over the large conglomerates and this touches on something john was hinting at earlier that Try as you might to seal off your deliberations as judges from sort of extra literary considerations. They do they do impinge. Um, so you look at a draft long list, for example, and notice that maybe what will people say about it? More men, yeah. What will mm. people say about it? More men. Uh, there might be more men than women. There may be more 
small publishers represented or, and so on. So I think it's um, it's idle to suggest that you can, you're as it, can, as it were, shut yourself off from those influences. Mm. I think it also goes to the heart of kind of, uh, which you put across so well in your piece, this kind of slight cynicism that the public can have about sort of what goes on behind closed doors. Well, that'll and be kind there of, whatever you decide. You know, yeah. Either yeah, there's too it, many famous people on your list or not or, enough. Or not you know, enough, yeah, you know, yeah. which I know people said about uh, you're going from the long list to the short list of the booker this year, actually. Some of the better known names were kind of taken out, which Well, I think even on our long list, there, was, there, weren't, there weren't many, many. household names. Yeah. But I think that, I mean, there's a kind of suspicion sometimes that, you know, what are the criteria and are there sort of deeper things at play that we, the public, don't know about when Ian McEwen won in 1998 for Saturday, people said, oh, you know, kind of right author, wrong for book. Amsterdam. Yeah. Sorry, for Amsterdam. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it's kind of a compromise. Yeah. Um, kind of compromise. I mean, that's one, Lifetime Achievement Award. Well, yeah. <laughs> which it shouldn't that's, be, essentially. No, that's difficult. I mean, the... I'm not sure how you avoid those considerations coming into play unless you're unless the judging is done blind. Yeah, every book comes to you in a brown paper a brown paper bag. Obviously impossible. <laughs> it's not. That's how we. It's that's how we actually idea. judge the F2 Bodlyhead essay oh, prize. But you'd know if I someone was. You know, you, you'd, you'd, you'd have to avoid all the reviews for you um, to, and, to yeah, not yeah, know the, that the you're reading with a you know recognisable style. I mean, right. imagine, for example, getting uh, David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest in a brown paper bag. I think you'll <laughs> pretty yeah. soon. I mean, there's another Griselda. You were talking about criteria. I mean, there's another criteria question that comes up is just how you choose the judges I think we were touching on yeah. on that earlier and again it's not obvious that there are any um, criteria there is this suspicion which I touched on in my piece and in fact I started the piece by telling an anecdote about bumping into a uh, judge of another literary prize who actually was um, <laughs> we Mr. can reveal <laughs> actually was Mr. John, Mr. John Day um, and the person we were with had a book that was under consideration for the prize I was judging um, and who was buying the pints <laughs> I think we were all buying our own. Yeah, I think we were all buying our own. It's um, not how it works. stingy prize we judges are. So it's the sort of thing that encourages suspicion about the the kinds of collusion that might um, that might go on. But it's not it's not obvious how you would set criteria for choosing judges. I think I said in the piece if you if you just chose all academics, for example, then you might end up not rewarding the kinds of books we think that something like the Man Booker some, Prize ought to be rewarded. And some prizes have the same yeah, judges quite, I was going to say, like, yeah, James you know, Tate Black and, 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 and in fact the, the judging process is is far more anonymous in those cases. Having this kind of stable jury makes the prize have a slightly different flavour, makes it have continuity in a way. I think over time that can be a problem. I mean, the Oscars I alluded to very briefly at the beginning, but the kind of sense of this very fusty academy being the arbiters of kind of film taste is has been shown to be very problematic. And as I understand, mm. I think that's how the Goncourt works in France. And the, the, and long, the, the longer the, and the Nobel yeah. indeed, and the longer <laughs> the longer that jury is in place and doesn't change, the um, the greater the scope is for gaming the system and corruption of all sorts. Just to bring things to a close, I I wanted just to, to pose a final question to you. Do you think that Dylan deserved to win a literary prize? What do we feel I'm, about yeah, that? I mean, I, I, I'm not up in arms about it. I must say. I mean, I, I don't. People want strong opinions on that. <laughs> I'm afraid I don't have one. You I can't think the Nobel them. is such a bizarre institution, anyway, with its own kind of culture and set of rules and expectations. But strangely, I think the person responsible for giving it to him is is a, is a wonderful modernist academic called Sarah Danius or Danius, who wrote a, a, a great and very 
technically complicated monograph on the senses of modernism. I mean, she's a kind of very, very, very serious academic who's just this year been um, been made chair of the judges. And I, th- I think she had a sense that she wanted to do something, mm. you know, that, that would generate. I mean, Christopher Ricks has been banging on about this. Quite, years, yeah. Like, I think he's almost single-handedly <laughs> responsible. For... Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not, like John, not especially interested in the question about whether Dylan is a is actually a poet or not but what he is is one of the great artists of the second half of the 20th century and i think that's one of the things the nobel committee is recognizing by giving him the prize yeah for that reason i think it's cool decision (laughs) (laughs) our verdict it's cool yeah we can deal with that thank you jonathan and john for joining us both in the studio and And thanks to you john john number three So, John, Lunch with the FT is a long-running classic interview slot, which you helped to edit. Uh, last week was Marina Abramovich, who I loved. There's recently been Zadie Smith, who was also great. Uh, who have you got this week? Yeah, so unusually for Lunch with the FT, in which we normally feature quite high-profile people, no one will have heard of this guy. He used to be a small-town cop in Iceland who um, has become the unlikely hero of the post-financial crisis world. And um, Basically, in 2008, after the financial crash, He took on um, this role as special prosecutor for Iceland and he managed to jail some of the country's biggest bankers, which no other country has achieved at all. Wow. In London and New York. Yeah, go Iceland. (laughs) In London and New York, you know, the only people who have been penalised have been, you know, fairly low down the food chain. And what's unusual about Olafur is he was, you know, he was more used to issuing kind of parking tickets. (laughs) Um, The biggest case he ever worked on was an attempted murder. So he really you know, was this small town cop and was thrust into the limelight and started kind of slaying bankers. So he has a totally remarkable story. The FT loves a banker slayer. Yeah, or maybe not. But um, yeah, so I spoke to Richard shortly after he did the lunch. So here's the phone call I had with him. Richard Mel. Hey Richard, it's John from the FT in London. So, you're in Reykjavik and you've just had lunch with Olaf Hawkson. Where did he take you? Uh, he took me to uh, the Hilton Hotel where we had an all-you-can-eat buffet. Glamorous. Oh, absolutely. Nothing but the best. A good spread of international fare and local fare. So a bit of sushi, a bit of lamb, a bit of chicken. And did anyone recognise him? No, they didn't. Um, I mean, it's fair to say he's not a household name uh, uh, internationally, and and he may be close to not being one uh, in Iceland as well. It it, it is very bizarre. I mean, I think there's a good case to be made for him really being one of the most extraordinary figures of the the, the post-crisis. I mean, the only guy to nail a bank chief executive, uh, and not just one, but uh, but three of them, uh, all the three big Icelandic banks. But he's very humble about it, um, and uh, he's achieved a lot despite a lot of uh, local opposition at times. And Richard, what does he make of all the attention he receives now? I think he takes it all in his stride, really. Um, uh, You know, he has a very uh, seemingly very strong sort of moral compass, which compelled him to go for the job. I have to think that when the the job of special prosecutor to look into the alleged miswrongdoing uh, in Iceland was set up, nobody applied. And what does he? um, What does he look like? He's a big 
big bear of a man, right? Well, that seems to be bear seems to be the main description that's applied to him. Uh, okay, you well, know, don't, don't use it in your piece. <laughs> let's not over exaggerate. Um, uh, but you know, he's a he's a robust guy like myself. He's uh, no stranger to the to the buffet. But you know, Icelandic hotel food has uh, it, it is probably much better than it was thirty years ago. Let's say <laughs> that's some consolation. Okay, and what next for what next for him? Well, his his empire has expanded. He um, he's seen off the politicians who've tried to scale back his activities, who weren't that keen on him looking into the banks. And he's um, his job description has changed; has now become district prosecutor. So he's in charge of sort of all major crimes, which includes murders and the like of that. And um, uh, I just think he's somebody who's got a the, the, in a country where trust in politicians, trust in bankers, almost completely evaporated uh, he's one of the people at the moment uh, in which there is trust um, okay Richard uh, look forward to the piece speak soon wonderful cheers thanks John thanks bye man Olafur Hawkson does sound like quite a remarkable guy but I definitely do not envy eating at an Icelandic buffet maybe Richard is not such a food snob as you are John yeah, well, most people get to go to amazing places. That's pretty, <laughs> he got, you know, thin end of the wedge there. He got a raw deal. Okay, so next up, we're going to hear from Kate Tempest. She seemingly can do anything and everything. She started off in spoken word and rap around South London. I used to go and watch her in some kind of shitty rundown pubs. Then she went on to writing poetry, and she won the Ted Hughes for Innovation and Poetry Award in 2013. Yeah. Since then, she's written albums, she's written a novel... Yeah, there's nothing she can't do, really. And you've seen that, haven't you, Griselda? I first saw her in the in the woods on the Isle of Wight at a music festival, and she was uh, performing her poetry there. It was amazing. People were just sort of sitting down amongst the trees and listening to her. And her charisma is is kind of amazing, actually. She she seems quite sort of shy and, and quite self-effacing until she starts. And then it's like she becomes sort of possessed by her poetry. And she's she turns into another person, I think, when she's performing. Yeah, she's quite... You know, when she came into the studio, which we're going to hear in a, you know, in a very short time, she's quite small, she's quite quiet, but the second she gets up on stage, she turns into a completely different person. Mm. It's amazing how she memorises this, you know, these pieces of music or poetry, whatever you want to call them, for like an hour long, and she's so intense, and some of it's... She'll be there with her eyes closed, yeah. kind of sweating, she's in the moment, totally. Yeah, and at the Riverly Ballroom, everyone was absolutely transfixed. It was one of the most, mm. you know, remarkable performances I've ever seen, really. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that she works across all these different genres. She's very prolific for someone who's just 30. But it seems like the thing that connects all her different work based on the page, in uh, her novels, her plays, her performances, is this kind of concern with London and how it's changing, and young people particularly, and people who have perhaps kind of lost out from capitalism it seems like that that's that's her concern yeah she's very she says she's not but she's a very very political artist she talks loads about gentrification things that really affect young people rising rent prices how bits of london are kind of becoming the same as any other city in europe you know the homogenization of culture basically yeah, is yeah. what she really gets passionate about so here's kate talking to me in the studio we came from the four corners, we are the raw waters, the cause, the four horsemen We drink from the water, the pores, we carry the river, the reservoir, the residue Rising waves, sea spray, the inevitable Let them eat chaos is probably quite hard to describe But I don't think it's that important that I am able to 
be definitive about the form of a piece of work. In the same way that Brand Ancients was really hard to describe. These are long poems, they're long stories, but they're set to music and there are moments when, of course, I'm locking in with the beat and I'm rapping. And I think for some people that makes it difficult to understand it in terms of its poetics or just the fact that it's a live performance. It doesn't quite fit into the bracket of how we understand a long poem, etc. I don't, I don't know how to describe it. And actually, if I could describe any of my work, I'd be worried, you know, because that would mean that I'm just doing something that I know how to do you know I'm just writing a poem rather than following an idea to its conclusion which often for me anyway doesn't seem to fit neatly anywhere Europe is lost America lost London lost still we are clamouring victory all that is meaningless rules we have learnt nothing from history the people are dead in their lifetimes dazed in the shine of the streets London is a changing place as is the globe right now you know and forever I have noticed big changes in my neighbourhood. That's something that has wormed its way out of my kind of heart, soul and mind into these characters that I've created. These characters, they they come into my head, I live with them, they're real, they, they exist. They begin to stand for so much in my kind of internal landscape. They represent people that I love, you know, people that I've lost, me. They're kind of quite powerfully present just in my kind of creative imagination and also, strangely, kind of externally as well. They're kind of around. I see them everywhere. This is Pete. Pete grew up on this street. He moved away, but he's back living at his dad so he can save. He rigs stages at live events, but every time he gets paid, he gets wasted and wakes up with less than he made and he hates it. But that's life, right? Fast-paced, shit-faced, low maintenance. And all of his mates are kind of on the same page. It's basic wages, takes ages to get through the month, but then payday comes and his drinks all round. Outrageous behaviour. Living right now, no sense of later. Pills by the pocket full, nights last days. And look, even if he never splashed out, he still couldn't make the rent on his own place. Face it. Well, if London is present in every song... It's not an intentional presence that I've kind of striven for. It's, it's where I'm from and it's where I've always lived and it's kind of everything that I know and everything I've learned about people I've learned there. So I've never felt the need to discover what it's like to live elsewhere because London for me is so full, so full of life. So the more kind of localised your, your story is, the more geographically specific you are when you're telling a story, the more universal it can be, strangely. It doesn't want me no more I've had a glimpse into the future It stinks, London's a wall for It's all for the rich If you fall short, you fall And you know where the door is Board up the broken Do it up, sell it back Make it bespoke It's all out in the open The idea of writing and not performing the writing was just ridiculous It's been a process that I've been developing alongside my writing Ever since I began writing I was also speaking the words out loud I was rapping So for the last 15 years of developing my lyricism and my flow and da, da, da. I've also been developing my performance. Recently, or over the last few years, the places that it takes me to when I'm on stage are kind of very profoundly moving places. You have this access to the place where creativity comes from, I think. The only thing that I know is when I don't go to that place, when it feels like I'm not really there, that's when performance is exhausting, that's when it's kind of strange, alienating. But when you are able to enter into this 
eternity, it kind of feels that deep inside. I've had um, countless terrible performances over the years. Like, the, and the point of it is, is like it's really important to have really bad performances. I was in a band called Sound of Rum, and we used to tour relentlessly to nobody all the time. And like, we had this quite complicated setup. Archie Marsh, who was my guitarist, he had all these loop pedals, and he had this massive pedal board, and it would often just break, like because we had no money, we didn't really know what we were doing. So, this one time we were doing this gig in like, I think South End on Sea or. Shoreham or like I don't know somewhere like that and um everything broke nothing would work so in the end I was it was just me and the two guys on stage just freaking out because there was no music and there was some guy in the audience I think he had a didgeridoo you know which gives like a bit of a <laughs> gives you some kind of no, like feeling for the kind of gigs that we used to play and then in the end we did this thing where the crowd kind of got involved in like doing this kind of awful, piss-poor beatbox, and this guy was playing didgeridoo, and I did my best to go with it over that. You know what I, mean? I mean, it was all right. People got into it in the end, but um, what's exciting for me now is every single time you go out on a stage and there's nobody there, or you go out on a stage and you're not really wanted, or you go out and you don't really have any time, or all of the things that you do for the first kind of 10 years when you're trying to earn your stripes, all of that lives in my, in my tissue and my body memory. It's all there. So when you go out on a stage where you have been booked where you, you do have a sound check, where your name is on the bill. Like, you don't take a second of it for granted. I saw some things when I was young that made me who I would become. I feel them with me every day, cos if you try and run away, they run beside you pace for pace, trip you up and drag your face through the mud of every waste, the chance and every bitter taste. Heart is sprayed up with the names of all my friends who lost their way. Doesn't change, it all remains. It takes my strength and gives me shame. All I want is someone great to make me everything I ain't. But the only ones for me are the ones that shouldn't be, even though I'm doing good. I'm I think it's very important to memorise text. I think it's important because it brings me closer to the audience. That We don't have this barrier between us, which is my lyric book. Because of my formative years as a rapper, the idea of turning up to a gig without your lyrics memorised, it's just that, that, that never occurred to any of us. Like, that's kind of absurd. It's like years and years and years of activating those muscles. It was a kind of editing process. If I couldn't memorise it, it probably wasn't any good and I would just leave it there. Also, it's a really important editing process because what your eye will look over, your mouth won't say. If it's kind of crap, you know, your your mouth won't bring itself to pronounce a shoddy line, but your eye can miss it very easily, I've found anyway. And this is when I developed this technique. I'd throw a ball up and down in the air and while I was delivering the words of Brand New Ancients, I'd, in my mind I'd be counting how many times I'd caught the ball. The idea is that it proves to your conscious mind that the lyric is in your subconscious mind. It doesn't matter how distracted you get, how terrified, it doesn't matter what your thoughts kind of go to, where they are, the words are in a different part of your mind. I heard your voice, so loud it woke me up. I don't believe in ghosts. You're with me all the time. I think I know you better than I did when we were hanging out together. What's it like where you've gone? Well, like In my opinion, and I don't want to kind of over-intellectualise a movement which is about so much more than the kind of stuffy intellectualization of its vernaculars, but I would say that there are huge commonalities between some of the rappers that I love and some of the writers that I love. I don't think to myself, today I'm going to be blown away by a rapper and tomorrow I'm going to be blown away by a poet. Like The way that I receive lyricism and literature is just with an open 
open soul you know it fills me up so for example William Blake who's one of my favorite poets for his legacy also for his his life I have seen and I have drawn a lot of similarities between him and Rizzo for example from the Wu-Tang because of this idea of the god within man and this idea of having to forge a whole new way of bringing your ideas into being. So, for example, Wu-Tang were kind of the first ones to be bootlegging records and selling them at the, out of the back of their cars at the end of shows. William Blake could not get his work exhibited and he developed a new way of forging onto copper plates, graving his images so that the colour and the shape and the words could live on the, on the surface of these gravings in the way that was truest to his visions. Pay more attention to the world, I suppose. Pay more attention to the people that you pass by. That's my driving force in all of my work and in every encounter that I have with people is to just remind people to position themselves more fully in, in reality and take, take more notice of the human beings that you encounter every day. That's what art is for, actually. This is what, this is... For me, what creativity does so so successfully and so satisfyingly. But also, once you know that kind of empathy from literature or music, you can switch it on just in everyday life. So, do that, guys. <laughs> Is anybody else awake? Will it ever be day again? Is anybody else awake? Will it ever be day again? Everything Else is produced by Chica Ayres. We've been Griselda Murray-Brown and John Sonia. Our music is composed and produced by Fatum. The album version of Kate Tempest's Let the Meet Chaos is out now on Caroline International and the book of the same title was published by Picador. You can read the FT's Books of the Year at FT Life and Arts Online as well as The Lunch with the FT with Olafur Hawkson. Let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at GriseldaMB and at John Sonia, or you can email us at everythingelse at ft.com. You can subscribe to Everything Else on iTunes, Stitcher and all the usual places you find podcasts and at ft.com slash everythingelse.